Thanks for listening to The Derivative. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as legal, business, investment, or tax advice. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of RCM Alternatives, their affiliates, or companies featured. Due to industry regulations, participants on this podcast are instructed not to make specific trade recommendations nor reference past or potential profits, and listeners are reminded that managed futures, commodity trading, and other alternative investments are complex and carry a risk of substantial losses. As such, they are not suitable for all investors. Welcome to The Derivative by RCM Alternatives, where we dive into what makes alternative investments go, analyze the strategies of unique hedge fund managers, and chat with interesting guests from across the investment world. In particular, with the commodities market, there is there's still quite a bit of dispersion between the spot and the futures market. Um, and so regulators do see a huge benefit for having more international participation to equalize it uh, with international dynamics. Far bit so, away. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I think I think this is this is a win-win situation for for both the offshore investors and, and onshore uh, investors and the, what QFI, uh is, is has now uh, the QFI regulators have now done is they've opened up the regulation to allow uh, more investors to come and access onshore, and it's still not you know retail guy still can't go in and get his own QFI license to do it, but a lot more uh, a lot more entities are allowed on. So anyone with with a with an established uh, a firm you know a, a decent size AUM or um, uh, as, as properly regulated in the respective jurisdictions and and agree to abide by the, the regulations onshore, um, it's, it's, it's more possible now, it's easier to get that license. But the key here is actually not just who can access the license, but more importantly, the products that can be accessed. Hello, everyone. We're heading over to Hong Kong for tonight's pod to dig into just what the uh, alternative investment landscape looks like in the broader Asian market and China in particular. Who's allocating? Who's looking to get access? Who has access? Uh, there's tight regulations and limited opportunities, but also huge opportunities for investors to access this young and quickly growing market. Uh, so with all the regulations and gatekeeping, we wanted to get some inside info, so to speak, straight from the source. So today we're joined by Alvin Fan, CEO of OP Investment Management. Uh, he's joining us to dig further into the Asian investment landscape, uh, the appetite for alts over there, what East, West, West, East means, and much more. So welcome, Alvin. Cheers. Good to be here, Jeff. Thanks. Uh, and it looks like you're back in the office. Yeah. Yeah. We got, we got the whole team in. We've been back for... Uh... For more than a few weeks, we've been in and out for the better part of the last six months. I mean, we're kind of lucky here, right? We've uh, we've kind of dodged uh, most of the uh, the daily cases, and I think we're at zero right now. So, the government's thinking of relaxing the, uh, um, the the austerity measures a little bit more. Awesome. And I remember last time we saw each other in person was uh, in Miami, uh, yeah. Jan of 2020, right? And I remember yeah. like I wanted to come in. I think you mentioned the virus and I was like, oh, that's not a big deal. Just let's talk about the riots. That's the bigger deal. So, <laughs> so you were right. I was wrong. The riots weren't as big of a deal. But what's what's going on with the whole social unrest landscape over there in Hong Kong these days? Yeah, well, I think for better or for worse, the um, the pandemic is kind of ironically just, you know, made everyone 
um, a little bit more concerned about their um, their health than than about social order. Though, um, you know, you've probably seen in the um, you know in the news there have been uh, a, a very very strong. There's been a very very strong move by the government to make uh, changes in, in the system in the regulatory system. Um, you're probably seeing NSL a lot in the news. Um, it's, it's very much a reactionary to try to, um, you know, try to restore some sort of social order after what happened in the last couple of, last couple of years from 2019. And, and so, so um, for business, uh, it's been, it's supposed to be, and it has been actually quite positive. Um, a lot of things have actually turned very much in favor of Hong Kong. You've seen a lot of IPOs return. Um, for better or for worse, because of uh, what's happening with, with the U.S. and China trade tensions. Um, but that's driving a lot of liquidity to the market. Um, government has also laid a roadmap for Greater Bay Area, which is to expand the uh, economic zone from Hong Kong, Macau to, um, you know, several other provinces, which essentially grows the market from, I think we're at about 8 million right now in, in Hong Kong. It'll grow the market to about 100 million in, in, in the space of the next decade. 8 so million. People, you're saying to yeah, email people, yeah. In terms of servicing of a, a, a serviceable financial sector, yeah. And what back during those riots, there was talk of financial firms leaving Hong Kong, like going to Shenzhen or Shanghai or wherever. Like, what did that happen, or was that fear mongering? Um, it's mostly it did happen, but probably not to the massive extent that. Uh, was being published in in the news. Uh, I think you did see uh, just out of um, I think just out of diversification, you saw a lot of account or deposits uh, diversify to Singapore, but not necessarily move out of Hong Kong. Um, financial firms, there are a few that opened up expansionary offices in Singapore, but not completely. You didn't see a mass exodus of. Um, you know, financial right, uh, financial firms or, or in, in, you know, FCMs or even asset managers uh, uh, reestablish themselves there. It's, it, we're still by far the, still the largest hedge fund hub, hub certainly the largest asset management hub in Asia to the day. Uh, and you, you see that changing anytime soon? Like the, uh, the fear is the Chinese government will come in and shut it all down, right? Um, yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't see that happening anytime soon. Um, one of the, you know, when we talk about what makes Hong Kong really special, a big part of it is about the regulatory framework that's been here. SFC is still the gold standard, uh, still perceived and regarded as a gold standard. Um, you know, onshore regulation is catching up really, really fast and they're learning and adapting, um, you know, very, very much geared towards, uh, building an onshore, uh, strong regulatory environment. And they do look to SFC for a lot of guidance on, 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 on bridging that gap. And that, that's still very, very much Hong Kong's edge. So I, yeah, I, we don't see that happening anytime soon. If, if anything, we do see um, Hong Kong's influence on China increasing over time. Got it. I'm just, sorry, and I'm very in the lead a little here, but yeah, I was, uh, was on with a hedge fund man, US manager the other day who's structuring trades, like basically puts on the Hong Kong dollar, um, you know, thinking that it's going to eventually crash because of the Chinese intervention. Uh, but anyway, we'll get to that in a minute. Hold on a second. I saw you had a, what, can I see your mug again? Yeah, sure. That's right. It's a Star Wars, come to the dark side. Nice. That's right. Nice. <laughs> we could have coordinated. I could have got one of my nerd mugs going. 
Um, and so let's back up. I heard you say out, like you're from Canada. So you're from Canada? Yeah, yeah. Born and raised in Canada, uh, born in Toronto. Um, uh, pretty much after I graduated in 99, I came back to Hong Kong uh, shortly after. I started my career in tech and uh, worked for Big Blue for a couple of years. Uh, and, you know, all, all, uh, all the rage at the time in Hong Kong was finance, and, and especially with the tech bubble coming to a close. And uh, so I, I finished up B-School at, at, at Western, shout out to the Mustangs, and um, moved into a private equity uh, for about four years, and four or five years. Western Michigan, you're talking Western Michigan? I'm Canadian, so it's Western Ontario. Western Ontario. All right, Western Michigan is the Cowboys or something. I'm going to look that up. Hold on. But okay, Western Ontario. What'd you say? Broncos? The Mustangs. Mustangs. All right. <laughs> yeah, so did B school, uh, undergrad and B school there, and um, um, moved into private equity for about four or five years. Uh, 09 GFC hit. And then um, we returned capital to, uh, to our investors at, at the fund I was working at, which was Accelera. Uh, and then I joined OP, OP Group, and then moved into uh, Fund of Funds. And now we're, we're, do, we're doing what we do now, which is hedge fund platforms. And the, the private equity was US-based or Asia-based? Oh, it was, it was um, Eastern Canadian Europe. Based. Yeah, no, it was, it was, the shot was based here in Hong Kong. Uh, we're looking at distressed um, assets in property related, uh, logistics, logistics related property, um, communication centers. Uh, we're in Romania, in Berlin, I spent three months of the year in, in Bucharest. Uh, we spent some time in, in Thailand. We're the first to, to, to move into Macau, uh, before the big, you know, Venetian, um, outlay started back in, in 2004. So it was, it was pretty exciting at the time. Yeah. So that firm returned all the money though, that it, couldn't make it through the, the down period? Yeah, I mean, we're lucky. We didn't lose any money for the for investors, uh, but because everyone was uh, diving for liquidity at the time, so we, we were lucky to be able to return money to the investors before uh, before we could make uh, any uh, liquid positions long-term. So, um, yeah, but, you know, even if you make the, the right decision doesn't mean that, you know, it's good for business. So we have to yeah. shut that. I, I always sometimes wish I was in private equity instead, where you don't have to mark to market every day, you get to call more capital from investors. That, that'd be, seems like an easier gig, but I guess right. you're proof we know on the other side. Right, I guess you're proof that there's downside to that as well. Um, before we go now, my next uh, attention disorder question is gonna be, what's that thing behind you there? Over your left shoulder, yeah. Oh yeah, that's the, uh, that's the monkey king. Uh, I get uh, here. I'm pointing here. Yeah, that's yep. a that's a yep. statue of the monkey king. Uh, it was a gift to me from uh, one of my uh, one of the founders of, of, of the group and colleague who left us. But um, yeah, monkey king is a historical Chinese figure. Um, the idea is to hopefully reflect some direction for for the firm and myself. And uh, nice. you know, so I keep it there. <laughs> Working so far. Yeah. Um, and word is you're a big tennis fan. Yeah, yeah, more of a avid player, big fan of, you know, the big three, you know, Fed Nadal and, uh, and Djokovic, hoping they'll hang around a little bit longer uh, to show the young blood, the young guns, how it's done. Um, Do you, you put Djokovic in that big three? 
Yeah, I think he's he's definitely up there now, right? And I, yeah. I do think he's got a few more majors ahead of him. He, he, he will very likely, I think the odd uh, bookmakers are placing him a very high chance of meeting, um, uh, matching uh, Fed and, and Nadal and potentially beating them. Really? I have, it's probably just a little ageism showing up like, no, how could you ever get ahead of Federer, right? But it's blasphemous, right? Yeah. Right. <laughs> I guess technically it's possible. And then Nadal, though, I'd rather watch Nadal any day than either of those guys. Yeah, he's super fun to watch. He's, he's got the energy. Uh, and then also I'm reading in your bio, your health hacks. What are, What's a health hack? Yeah, so I'm a big... Um, I'm, uh, health hacks are like, you know, I think everyone is into it now, these natural supplements. Um, I, was, I was indoctrinated into CTM, Chinese traditional medicine, when I was a kid. So having really awful, you know, fluids being forced down my throat was something that, <laughs> <laughs> that, that, you know, became pretty routine for me. It helped clear my acne at the age of 21. So that made me a believer. Um, and then I moved from, from CTM to, you know, because of my Western background, I, I kind of like to see a lot of this being verified in science. So, you know, studying a lot of, of the, um, of the, uh, of the U S and the Canadian uh, research papers on how natural supplements are now, you know, actually very effective and great alternatives for, for Western medicine. So, uh, yeah, I think a lot of us now, probably including yourself, Jeff, we've, we've got a big stack of supplements sitting in the, in the front drawer when we wake up in the morning, you know, half of it works. Not sure if the other half does, but, uh, I'd like to think it keeps us uh, younger for longer. Who told right at the beginning of COVID, I, bought like a from Costco like a thing bigger than this room of like the uh vitamin c packets like the fuzzy <laughs> things you pour into a cup yeah so I'm almost done with those I take like one or two of those a day yeah but, but it didn't and, save me I still got the COVID but um <laughs> we'll see but, but no, I'm not into those, yeah I'm not into those supplements the my wife's cousin sells the oils you're not into the oils are you no I haven't figured it out yet yeah yeah don't do it. I think there's a reason they called it snake oil back in the in the 1800s, right? Now it's just snake essential oils have replaced snake oils. Yeah. <laughs> um, cool. So then you're back in Hong Kong. Or I wanted to ask you quick. So what were you doing? You said Big Blue, so that's IBM. Yeah, IBM. And so you were a coder or a salesman or a tech guy? What were you doing? Yeah, yeah, I was in, in marketing and sales. Um, was looking at more on the product development side. Um, at the time, Dell, uh, I don't know if you, anyone still remembers Dell. It was a big yeah. computer company. Yeah. <laughs> uh, invented the direct model. And uh, I had done um, a contract with Dell for about half a year, almost a year, when I just graduated, just to pay off some credit card bills. And... Um, uh, when I came to Hong Kong, I got picked up by a team, IBM.com at the time, and they're looking at completely restructuring their business model to the direct model. So I had a little bit of experience at Dell, and, and I was able to, to add some value. So I got lucky, got onto a couple of implementation projects, um, restructuring projects, um, budgeting, and um, this was just before uh, the firm sold um, the firm sold the Lenovo brand, which was a, a yeah. laptop brand for those of you. To Sony? Yeah. Who'd they sell it? Yeah. Sold it to, they, they, sorry, they sold the ThinkPad brand uh, to Lenovo, which oh, is yeah, now yeah. 
you know, allow, uh, you know, a big computer manufacturer, yeah. So you stumbled upon one of my favorite dad jokes. What do you call a singing computer? <laughs> what do you call a singing computer? Should I know this? No, Adele. Adele. <laughs> Adele. <laughs> um, That's terrible. <laughs> it's terrible, but fine. It's sort of hip. It's not a total dad joke because Adele's sort of modern in the last 15 years, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, and there's right. just enough people in the audience who know Dell. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, another thing, we'll put it in the show notes. If you've ever seen Dell's stock chart, it's like almost exactly, I think it was outperforming Bitcoin. Like that was just an insane, right? Because he started it in his garage or whatever in Austin, Texas. And yeah. then it's another great success story because he bought it right kind of after that model died and Apple was taken over. He bought it back. Michael yeah, Dell took it private. Um, and then built it back up and then re-IPO'd it. So I think it's back public now. So yeah, super American success story there. Yeah, I love it. So you leave there, you go work in private equity, and then you end up back in Hong Kong and join OP. So who's, what's OP stand for? And back in my surfing days, that stood for Ocean Pacific. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, OP stands for Oriental Patron. Uh, okay. Oriental Patron is probably still one of the oldest partnerships in Hong Kong. It's a boutique investment bank um, that started in 1992. Um, you had two policy writers from the CSRC, the Chinese regulator, uh, got together with two um, two Hong Kong um, two Hong Kong. Uh, brothers. One was an investment banker from Credit Agricole. The other was uh, um, an accountant by training. And the four of them, really simple, helping small companies uh, access capital markets, raise capital in, in, in Hong Kong, on the London Exchange. Um, we became, started off as, as an advisor, IPO house. Um, we were one of the first to uh, sponsor, to be a sponsor for the GEM board, which is the same as the London Ames board. So these are all growth enterprise uh, uh, companies. Um, and then, you know, fast forward to the mid 2000s, you kind of, you, you got to grow, right? These companies are going to grow with you. So you kind of grow with them. You know, these are the first tractors, the menu, dairies. Um, as they grow, you grow and you, know, you, you start expanding your services into uh, brokerage, institutional desks, uh, research, uh, and then finally asset management. And asset management is kind of where we, we came out of. Uh, and just want to back up there for a second. So all these companies are IPOing it. They are in Shanghai and a Hong Kong. They have a dual listing or how does that all work? Yeah, yeah. They might establish uh, an offshore entity um, and then they'll do a, uh, they might not necessarily list onshore. They might list in, in Hong Kong first or um, at the time, you know, you know, so long as the business was, was strong, there was, there was some way to help them raise capital. Um, and at the time, there was a, a growing push for internationalization. Um, and, and, you know, we're kind of past that point now. But um, at the time, you know, a lot of the, their aspirations are coming offshore. It's not just to raise capital, but also to, um, to increase their brand presence uh, globally. And Hong Kong is the first, first port of call. Yeah, yeah. And so what were some of those early companies that built the back? What'd you say? A tractor oh, gosh, company? Yeah. Yeah, like you know, these are like like first tractor. Um, I think we're we're also involved with uh, Ming New Dairy, which is one of the largest dairy companies. Um, uh, Hainan Airways, 
uh, which, which, you know, which, you know, is, is, is actually having a really tough time right now, but they're still one of the largest um, airlines in, in, in the country at the time. Um, but yeah, um, you know, all of these companies at the time were very, very small, had, had great global aspirations and, and were one of the first to help them come out. Um, even up until the mid 2000s, even though it wasn't a capital markets deal, uh, we helped one of the largest fixed income managers uh, come offshore. Um, China Southern, I believe at the time they're second or third in, in, in the country. Um, when they came offshore, they started, and we can talk about this later, uh, they started with the first QFI license. Yeah. And when they came into Hong Kong, and a QFI license allows you to trade onshore, uh, underlying assets onshore. Um, and when they came offshore, uh, they were given one of the first licenses. We created a joint venture company called CSOP. Um, CS for China Southern, OP for Oriental Patron. Um, assets were just like 100 million at the time, uh, roughly speaking. They're now, uh, today they're over 10 billion US, I think. They run one of the, the biggest ETFs, uh, ETF portfolios in, in, in Hong Kong. Wow. And, so, and it's fixed income still? Um, uh, not just fixed income. Uh, the big ones are now it's ETFs. Uh, so these okay. are equity. Got it, got it. And so you came over and they started, as you said, the kind of final piece there was investment management, asset management. Yep. So was OPI, IM pieces, investment management that had already been started or you came in and started it? What did that look yeah, like? so that was kind of started at the time. We were looking, uh, the, the management was looking at building in-house products, but asset management, as, as you, you, know, you guys are very well, it's, it's a very tough business building products in general building alpha products is even tougher. Mm -hmm. um, what we started off realizing, and, and this was a combination of what we did with CSOP was that we said, hey, look, uh, building in-house products is pretty tough, but you have all this talent in the region. So the idea came was, well, what if we were to mine that talent? Um, you know, the, and we're talking about homegrown, fundamental uh, macro managers. Um, and we got together with a couple of um, fund of funds. We built this incubation fund of fund, started with a really small number of about a hundred million or so. And uh, we started seeding them in, you know, small emerging managers and it turned out uh, really successful. Um, so we took the learning points of that and we thought, what if we built a platform that could enable early stage managers, some with pedigree, some without pedigree and help them build that two to three track, two to three year track record, right? Now, one thing that's that's true globally about about starting a fund or a hedge fund or or a product is you need that two to three year track record, yeah. and it's really really expensive to um, um, set up a firm for that. So we we built a platform to help them uh, work out those two to three years, and then we would help market them uh, to institutions afterwards. And so it I, there was what never was any in house product. Uh, no, no. We well, we did have one at the time was the fund of funds. We did the in-house product then. There was a legacy uh, fund at the time, um, but that fund um, we retained it. But it they became kind of like a client manager, meaning like they're partnered with us, but they they run independently. Uh, we run risk uh, middle back office, uh, but the PM is still with us. Um, but by and large, no, we don't we don't run any internal like. Uh, uh, homegrown products. Right. So you're, you're saying and said, hey, we know all how the pipes work. We know all the regulations. Let mm -hmm. us help you get set up. Let us help you get set up possibly cheaper. You focus on just delivering the alpha. 
Exactly. That's exactly it. Um, so it's an education process, right? It's like starting a business. Um, a lot of these guys who spin out from sell-side shops, even buy-side shops, they've never actually run a business before, uh, which is ironic because they spend most of their lifetime analyzing other businesses and yeah. criticizing <laughs> other businesses. But if you actually put them in the in the driver's seat, you'd be amazed at how many of them um, you know, uh, are actually successful in that venture. Right. And some, it's that down to the trade level. Like sometimes they don't like, well, I've never had to reconcile my own trades or things like that. Like that was done by the, you know, the big firm or the team over there. Now I don't have a team, but <laughs> things like that are also things like marketing and cap intro. And- oh yeah. It, it, it runs the entire gamut. Um, it started off really just, you know, doing, you know, middle, middle, uh, sorry, just back office settlements, reconciliation work, accounting, um, but we, being the license holder, you, you have a fiduciary for more than just that, right? You have a fiduciary responsibility for looking after risk, which is in part very much a discretionary uh, role. So um, we started building a, a, really, a really strong expertise in understanding how um, managers think, especially from a psychological perspective, from a risk management perspective. Um, you know, a lot of these guys are one-man shops, two-man shops they can get into trouble sometimes. And so having, um, having a team to help them flesh through uh, what a book should be run, how a book ought to be run, a diversification or um, sizing, uh, execution, best execution, pricing, for example, um, it, it's, it's a lot of value add. We then moved into cap intro simply by virtue of the fact that we had flow of, of new emerging managers and we became... I don't think lightning rod is the word, but we became a, kind of like a, a, a draw point for a lot of allocators, um, accelerators who are looking for emerging managers outside of the, you know, the bottleneck big managers out there that are, are, are yeah. kind of massive. You mentioned cap intro. So you guys run some, uh, they used to be in-person events, but you've been doing virtual events too. Like um, how does that look? There's kind of the context of, of Hong Kong. Yeah, yeah. So uh, all of the the events that we run are through the the lens of Asia. Um, That's kind of our bread and butter. It's where our specialty is. The platform has around 38 funds on the platform right now. We run about 1.8 billion in assets. Um, But we also represent a lot of uh, managers who are third party who we thought were fantastic and really deserve some attention. So um, every year we run a cap intro event just for these, you know, breakout managers. Uh, next one's coming up um, April 13th, week of April 13th. So, yeah, uh, you know, shameless plug there. Uh, yeah, give no, me a we'll, call. We'll put a link to, uh, to it in the show notes. Talk for a second about who, who's coming to you. Are there people coming out of China, out of mainland and wanting an international presence? Are they already international? Yeah, when we started off, um, it was Pan-Asia. So we had managers from Japan, we had managers from Singapore, uh, China as well. And then about uh, six, seven years ago, um, uh, I, I came and I, I, took over the, uh, I took over the business more full time. And we did a study. Uh, we had a look at, we knew that there was a massive demand for um, on the ground uh, China uh, talent. This was without a doubt 
the demand was there. It was going to grow. We knew that. Uh, we knew that because you could see the flows of uh, uh, the flows of capital coming to Hong Kong, coming to China. China had a, a, a fantastic GDP growth story. A lot of the global allocations into China were still run through managers out of New York, out of London, and a lot of the allocators were talking to us felt that this is not really the way it should be. The inherent philosophy of having on-the-ground managers is, is key to, uh, to driving returns. So let, let um, me pause you real quick there. So you had, there was maybe a U.S. pension is getting their money offshore, it goes to Hong Kong, and then gets into mainland China to trade some of these companies. But the trading of those companies is being run by someone in New York. Yeah, yeah. I like, mean, how can they be doing a good job of analyzing those trades? Like, let's get someone on the ground. Exactly, exactly. That's 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 kind of it. And you know, for the most part, you know, accessing China is is primarily through Hong Kong. And Hong Kong is an open market. It's a global market. You can trade Hong Kong from anywhere. Um, data uh, is available as much here in Hong Kong as it is for anywhere in, in the world. So a lot of the managers who are trading China or getting exposure to China were like, okay, well, I don't need to be there. Of course. Now we know that's that's not that's not true, right? Um, if you want to trade the uh, jurisdiction that you want exposure, you need talent on the ground, um, and we saw that we saw that demand, and we at the time we thought that demand would pan out ten years, right? It would take ten years for that demand to, to grow. We didn't realize at the time that the demand for talent would grow exponentially. Um, so 2016, 2015, there's the crash, the China market crash. And something really weird happened is that whenever you have a crash like that, you have a huge demand for, uh, you know, it's, it's an opportunity, right? It's an opportunity when you have a massive crash like that. And suddenly you had a lot of questions or a lot, a lot of questions, but a lot of interest in the market because now you have a once in a lifetime dip. The demand for people who would, could go flat or go short. Exactly. Instead of just it, holding long. Yeah. Exactly. That's, that's right. Picking so, so we looked at the talent pool in China, right? And at the time, Okay, so you look at the Eureka Hedge Index right now, or the Eureka Hedge population. It's roughly 15,000, 15,000 names on the Eureka Hedge. So that's, you know, managers are all different sizes. And it doesn't cover the entire population, but you have 15,000 covering, you know, 50 countries, 200 different strategies, et cetera, right? So we went and we, we looked at the, uh, the equivalent of um, like a hedge fund license in China, what they call private license. Yeah. The private asset management license covers roughly, roughly fifteen to twenty thousand names, or fifteen to twenty thousand managers. Really? So you have—that's a massive number, yeah. right? Now, right? That's like I thought there was like fifteen thousand hedge funds in the world. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Was, there's one of those hedge fund managers who jokes that there's more uh, hedge funds than Taco Bell's or something, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> In the world. There's a lot of Taco Bell. We can talk about Taco Bell later. I love Taco Bell. Um, <laughs> in high school, I was big. I was like 205 football player. And I would go every day, get four soft taco Supremes, four hard taco Supremes. Probably I'm glad you went for the anyway. Supremes. I'm glad you went for the Supremes. Yeah, oh, yeah. You got to get the sour cream in there. Yeah, yeah exactly. The sour cream. <laughs> um, yeah, so exactly. So you have like you know, 15, 16,000 of them, which is still, you know, and it's growing, right? So we were thinking if we could tap into just, you know, 1% of that talent 
and we're saying, okay, how do we merge this, this pool of talent, help them, help them upgrade themselves, restructure them to the point where they're at from a regulatory level, from a compliance level at the standard that institutions are looking for. It doesn't have to be an A plus, right? As long as we can get them anywhere in, you know, a passing grade, right? Yeah. A B, yeah. a B minus, a B plus, you could have a tremendous opportunity here to, uh, to help, you know, onshore managers raise capital and help offshore allocators generate. Or, or, and, or and to me, when you say that, like that might make some people nervous of like, all you need is a B minus. But I think more we're talking about there's table stakes that you have to have in terms of yeah. risk controls, everything. Maybe, Maybe you don't have to become an A plus and have like biometric entries to your office and things like that. Right. Or like, Exactly. Uh, security guard, like some of these, that's the A plus, right? Of the firms that have every single box checked on like a, a $80 billion pensions allocation. So exactly. I get what you're saying of like, no, you, you can still be a B and be one of the most, you know, sophisticated shops in the world. Yeah. Oh, exactly. I don't want to name names, but you have plenty of, you know, B, B plus shops in, in the U.S. that are managing tens of billions, if not hundreds of billions of, of dollars. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, So everything we're just talking about to now is still accessing China, but through Hong Kong and through the, so it's not directly trading A shares. Let's give it, give the world a little uh, landscape on what's, so you have China A shares, which is their stock market. And then how do you trade those through Hong Kong? So Hong Kong, um, so Hong Kong, I don't know if they, I have anything to add here, but um, you know, traditionally you needed in order to trade onshore A shares, onshore A shares are China shares basically, and they're listed in China. Um, you needed a, a license, a QFI license in order to trade that. And so that would be only for qualified foreign institutional investors, right? Um, Hong Kong opened up, um, opened up this gamut or to open up access through the Hong Kong uh, Shanghai Connect program. And that Hong Kong Shanghai Connect program means that you can execute and settle through Hong Kong brokerages um, uh, and, and it grants you access to a certain percentage, roughly half of the, the stocks that are available uh, in China. Um, and so if you so are I'm looking big at- US hedge fund, I don't wanna risk putting my money onshore. I'm gonna mm -hmm. go through a Hong Kong brokerage and this could be a big shop like UBS or something, right? Like whatever, yeah, it could yeah. be Goldman, it could be a big shop. They put their money through Hong Kong Connect. Everyone's happy. They take a, they take some spread on it, whatever. Exactly, exactly. So, and you know, there's Hong Kong is, it's a, it's a global hub. So all of the brokers here, UBS, Goldman Sachs, Interactive Brokers, um, you know, the list goes on and on. Um, so that, I mean, that is a very well-established, um, protocol and, and, yeah, for uh, like decades or at least a decade. Yeah. Used to take it. Yeah. 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 Very, very proven. Yeah. And that's different than if I, there's Hong Kong shares as well. Right. But those are at a discount or they're at a premium to the China shares. Yeah. I mean, it, it depends. It depends on the flow, supply and demand. Yeah. Sometimes there are discounts, sometimes there are premium um, the onshore market is massive. Uh, I don't have the numbers on me, but it's, it's multiple times the size of the Hong Kong market. Um, but the Hong Kong market is still sort of the de facto global access point um, for, uh, for, for these great companies that are looking to 
uh, either do a list or even you know uh, uh, have an initial um, initial or an IPO uh, in the global markets more so today than ever. And so that's the stock trading essentially. Correct. But now China's also coming along with futures markets. So there's we wrote a blog post about I don't know it might have been a year ago now we'll put it in the show notes that they're in the billion dollar billion contract club now not dollar. Um, so they're global, you know, collectively across the, all those exchanges, they're trading over a billion contracts a year, which is yeah. basically just Eurex and CME um, are the other two that can claim that. So <laughs> maybe ICE as well. I don't know. But um, so impressive, all that volume. So kind of talk us through is the next stage now, like, hey, foreign Western money wanting access to those futures markets. Yeah, the, the two, I think the two untouched vestiges of alpha and of, I just, uh, of, of opportunity for China right now on, on, the, on the trading side is the bond market and the futures market. So um, just quickly touch on the bond market. That's yeah. Foreign participation is like single digit right now. Really? Uh, still single digit. Um, there is access to the C, I think it's the Chinese interbank um, market uh, system, allows foreigners to uh, invest into onshore corporate bonds. Um, but that's, it's a massive, massive market. And it only, foreign participation is, it's doubled, but even doubled, it's still under 10%. It's like 5%, I think it is, uh, which is, which is insane. So we do see a lot of uh, potential there. The futures market is also very... Well, Sorry, just a, what kind of corporate, do you have any idea what the yields are? Or the what's First of all, what's the government yield? Is like 2% versus our zero? Yeah, yeah. It's positive. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I'm There's assuming their corporates are even, uh, you know, a similar spread above our corporates. Yeah. And I think more importantly, the demand has shot up for it over the last year. I mean, it's no secret that... Um, you know, you look at the way the balance sheets are moving uh, between, you know, the majors like the U.S., Europe and, and, and China. China's first in, first out. There's a lot of talk about um, there's a lot of talk about um, decoupling, but I don't know if it's as decoupling as much as China's a leading, just a leading indicator because it came out of COVID before. Uh, yeah. and, and like you said, you've been back in the office for a month. Exactly, exactly. I don't think it's so much, I'm not convinced yet it's so much decoupling as it is just that, okay, you know what, Uh, CSI 300 is already up 40% year on year. Um, You know, trade volume has gone up, even the commodities index, the commodities trading is up 50%, uh, you know, year on year, Uh, we got to cool things down. Um, So you had the government really tightening up on the M2 monetary supply over the last quarter. And you're seeing that reflected in the stock market now. You know, um, markets are down. Markets are down eight percent or something like that. Or they're yeah, they're down a little bit, but still yeah. year on year, uh, the the CSI is up forty percent. So they're taking a bit off the top, um, but this is indicative of how the policy the, the government is looking to hopefully stave off something more disastrous later. Um, and what did you mean when you said China's first in, first out? Just oh, first, first I mean, the first into the COVID, COVID situation, the first, yeah, yeah, yeah. And first to come out of it, yeah. So the logic there is that the the economy's healthier, it's recovering faster, and that these corporate bonds have... Yeah, it's massive. Think, like, 
as me as an investor, I'd worry that like the government there can pick winners and losers, right? Like they could shut some company down and you could lose everything in the bond deal. Um, but there, I think as a Westerner, I have preconceived notions about that. And I'm like, there's plenty of fraud and similar things in the, in the Western countries. You just get worried about it in the, right. I, I was joking about this. Like if GME, if GameStop happened in China, like everyone in the U S would be like, Oh my God, look at what's happening over there. They let some message board drive a stock up 4,000%. Like those guys don't know what they're doing over there. Um, <laughs> and here yeah. in the U S it's like, Oh, they're brilliant. Look at these retail heroes. Uh, <laughs> That's right. Um, there, yeah. There'd be definitely a lot of wave flagging. I, I think uh, flag waving. I think also if what also is ironic is you look at um, this massive retail participation that's happening in the U.S., this massive flood of capital that's helping retail. And weirdly enough, this is kind of what's been um, happening onshore in China for the better part of the last decade. Massive retail participation uh, versus institutional trading, institutional investors. Um, it, it's it's almost black and white, right? It's like 70%, yeah. 67% retail participation in China. Um, and while it's not quite that level in the U.S. right now, I think just the sudden spike in retail, um, you know, re retail participation is, is changing the dynamic and the signature of the volatility to make the U.S. look a lot like China you know, th that it was, you know, that it has been over the last decade. And do you feel that Chinese retail participation is because the institutional is invested elsewhere or be just because yeah. the individuals are that much more into the market? Like, are they taking more of their savings and putting into the market than U.S. people? Um, yeah, I think, I mean, when the, if you look at it, the, the Chinese stock market has, in playing catch up, it's developed very, very fast. It has much shorter history than other global markets. So um, when it opens that quickly and you have that much growth in, um, in, in consumers and individuals and a growing middle class, which is, now, I believe the middle class is larger than the U.S. middle class in terms of, 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 of spending power, then their participation in a speculative market like, like um, you know, uh, uh, like the stock market, for example, is, is going to be much higher. Now, to answer your question about institutions, as a policy, institutional institutions are very conservative, and, and sovereign policies have made it more challenging for them to, to participate in the equity markets um, historically, but that is changing because they have, you know, they have a drive and they have metrics for yield as well. So we will see that start to open up. And that leads me back to futures because those same institutions have a mandate for a yield. And so they're looking at alternatives. They're looking at things that can help when the markets go down. I'll back up and we'll talk about QFI because that's what was supposed to uh, enable yep. that participation. So explain to us again what QFI is, how that helps get money onshore into China. Sure, QFI is basically a, um, it's kind of like a channel through the, um, that's built for uh, capital controls to allow foreign institutions, um, investors to access onshore markets. So previously it was primarily uh, the capital markets like stocks, to some limitation of bonds as well. Um, most of it was also, it had a very high barrier of entry, meaning the license could only be issued to 
very, very large institutions with, um, and, and, and a quota would be applied to it. And so let me back you up for a second. So the, yeah. the, uh, 30,000 foot view is if I have a hundred million dollar family office here in the U S and I want to put 10 million into China, I've met some great guy on Alvin's platform. That's trading Chinese futures markets. I can't fund him, right? I can't put my money into China for him to previously, trade. Previously, yeah. previously. So, so QFI's a method to say, hey, we're trying to allow some of this international investment through this QFI protocol. Exactly. They want some investment through the QFI protocol. Um, the idea is to help make the markets more efficient, um, to help um, you know drive uh, more competition. Um, in particular, with the commodities market, there is there's still quite a bit of dispersion between the spot and the futures market. Um, and so regulators do see a huge benefit for having more international participation to equalize it uh, with international dynamics. Far a bit so, away. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, so I think I think this is this is a win-win situation for for both the offshore investors and, and onshore uh, investors. And the, what QFI uh is, is has now uh, the QFI regulators have now done is they've opened up the regulation to allow uh, more investors to come and access onshore. And it's still not, you know, retail guy still can't go in and get his own QFI license to do it, but a lot more, uh, a lot more entities are allowed on. So anyone with, with a, with an established uh, a firm, you know, a, a decent size AUM or, um, as, as properly regulated in the respective jurisdictions and and agree to abide by the the regulations onshore, um, it's 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 more possible now. It's easier to get that license. But the key here is actually not just who can access the license, but more importantly, the products that can be accessed. So we yeah. talked about the bond market. Now the futures market is on the way. They're still working out the operational uh, pipes to allow for that and the rules for that. But um, the so futures they basically market, said, hey, you can do futures now through QFI. Yep. We'll let you know how. Stay tuned. <laughs> Which was what, four months November. ago? Six months ago? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Regulators tend to be like that, right? I mean, they're not particularly known for, uh, for keeping a great timetable. Right. And they don't have to be reelected or anything over there. Right. So it's, they don't have any of that pressure. Just we'll get to it when we get to it. That's right. Um, so sorry, I cut you off. So the futures piece is was passed. It's a new rule, it's a, but it hasn't been figured out yet. Yeah, because you have a lot of exchanges that need to get involved in terms of the rule set, in terms of the pipes. Um, CSRC does have regulatory oversight, um, but it, you do need to integrate with a lot of a lot of entities to make sure that execution clearing is going to be is going to be clean. Um, so, but the opportunity set is enormous, right? I mean. Uh, I think you and I were talking earlier about the size of the, the nominal exposure, right? The nominal trading. It's like uh, CME is like 53 trillion or 55 trillion or something like that. Um, Shanghai and Dalian combined is 25 trillion US dollars. So it's already half of the CME, yeah. um, which is enormous, right? Um, I think what is also interesting is the the trade volume or the turnover, right? Turnover on the CME is something like 45 times a year. Right? A turnover on the Shanghai Futures Exchange is like 250 times, right? Really? Um, yeah. 
which is in, which is insane. Or like even Dalian is like 150 times, right? Yeah. So so you have a lot of trading activity there. It is spec. It, it is a lot of speculative behavior as well. And so having more competition and more participants come in is going to help mature these markets. And, and I think that's good for everyone. Well, not everyone, because we a lot of managers we talk to who run the data and they're like, this is like the good old 80s with directional volatility, you know, and these markets are moving. They have more pronounced trends, longer lasting trends, um, which maybe that is because there's more speculation or less are being away or there's less high frequency mm -hmm. firms over there that are that are taking the other side. So whatever the reason, they're seeing a little bit of that, although I feel like it's starting to erode away a little bit. But, and also wow. interest, interesting to me is just the markets over there. So you have like rebar concrete and polyurethane and like these markets we don't have here. So it's also another, allows you to expand your market and it allows you to be like, that's where the action's happening, right? Like, sure, we're consuming commodities here in the US, but nowhere near the scale that they're consuming them in, in China and in Asia overall, right? Yeah, the, the, the staples, uh, the staples uh, dynamic and, and just the, the menu there is, is vast. Yeah, I was gonna go, I have this list here. I'll just read off some of these markets. PVC, <laughs> I don't know if that's like the pipe, hot rolled coil, low sulfur fuel, Coke, <laughs> apples. I wanna trade apples, not <laughs> apple, apples. <laughs> um, and then normal stuff like copper, uh, iron ore, palm oil. So those are some few, those are some good ones. We need to make it get a sticker made. I trade apples, not apple the stock, apples. So that's futures. So in theory, when this opens up, um, someone could come through a firm like OPIM and trade futures markets there, right? Yeah. So next, though, they also said when they updated the rule that you could invest in onshore hedge funds, right? That's right. Actually, the onshore hedge funds came first. Okay. Um, right now, you are allowed to uh, invest in onshore hedge funds um, through the QFI license, and and that's that's an interesting dynamic because it it's it allows a lot more, far more allocators to do what huge institutions have been doing for, for the last decade, like CPPI or, um, you know, Harvard and, and all these other major institutions have been able to access onshore managers directly through their QFI license. Now it's expanded to medium-sized and, 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 and uh, even smaller-sized uh, uh, allocators. So that's going, to, that's going to level the playing field a little bit as well. Um, I think the question, I think the elephant in the room is, well, if more capital is being allocated to, uh, um, you know, managers onshore, you know, where's Hong Kong's role in this, right? Well, I think these are two completely different uh, type of uh, exposure and risk profiles. I mean, if you're investing into directly into managers onshore, um, you, are, you are also subjecting yourself to onshore regulatory framework, which is different from Hong Kong regulatory framework. It's improved leaps and bounds, and it's going to meet the level of Hong Kong and global standards very, very soon. But um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. From what we we talk with some allocators, they're not yet comfortable going the full extent. So Hong Kong is still kind of like a stop, stop and go point for for management regulation. Although you might still uh, you can still access the same products through Hong Kong. And would and so wasn't that private fund QV was available for like five years ago, right? But they never filled it up. Nobody could fill that quota. 
Yeah, I think generally the Q fee, first of all, the, the number of holders was not, was not a, a broad, uh, was not a very deep bench. Uh, second of all, there was, a, there was a quota that was applied. So if you have a quota for Q fee, you are going to use that quota to invest into entrepreneur managers or, you, or are you going to use it to trade, you know, uh, more broadly, uh, you know, on the stock market, for example. Yeah. You only have so much ammunition, so you have to decide how you use it. Like you mentioned that there's this kind of an ARB opportunity or you didn't say that I brought that up, but it seems to me that's like prop traders would want to come in and say, hey, I can trade U.S. soybeans versus China soybeans and either electronically or uh, fundamentally have some sort of ARB going there. So is that yeah, what you're saying? Exactly. like the, the Chinese government actually would uh, kind of appreciate that and kind of ARB away the bigger spread? Um, yeah, to an extent, that's, that's as a function of making the markets more efficient. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's definitely that, uh, that intent. Um, and it, it, it creates a great opportunity for offshore, offshore investors to come in and, and help sort of widen and broaden the investor base for those markets as well. And then in, in theory, those investors can come in now and there's seven approved markets. Uh, approved futures markets, but how does yep. that work? Like a U.S. investor can't trade them directly yet. So right now, um, as of now, U.S. can come direct even through these international markets, um, uh, but other yeah. cannot. Yeah, yeah. cannot. Um, you know, hopefully that will change over time. Um, moving forward, the Q fee. When we're talking about global allocators, they can, they can access the um, uh, the five to seven international markets. Um, in terms of the product lines, I think after the QFI rules come out, that's going to expand to 71 products, I think it is, 71 or 72 products, which is going to be, as you say, is going to be very, very interesting. Yeah. But you think that will happen like all at once or it'll be, go from 7 to 20 to 42? Yeah, I, I, I suspect it will be staged out. Um, it is taking longer for those rules to come out than, than we originally thought. But, uh, you know, Jeff, you'll be the first guy I call is, uh, the moment yeah. I get out get the green light do you have any like do you have any experience with other rules of how long it took like could it be six years or what are your thoughts um i i think it would be i think there would be some serious um you know some serious political issues if they were not able to deploy it this year um for them to issue an announcement in november and be that bullish about it um and have that much momentum behind it but still have it delayed for, for longer than a year. I, I think they might have, either they might have found some mechanisms that need to be fleshed out. Uh, and hopefully even if there are, they'll, they'll be transparent with us so that we know where they are on that roadmap. Um, um, or maybe uh, foreign policy or even you know, domestic policy had, had shifted uh, by then. But my, my expectation is that they'll, they'll at least give us some guidance over the next quarter. Awesome. Give me the landscape on like, I'm going to back up to your platform and the landscape of like what these managers are doing. So are they all over the board? Are they long, short equity? Are they distressed debt? Like, give me, give me the landscape of what, what people are running over there. Yeah. Most of the strategies, I mean, I'm not sure if if our platform is, is anywhere indicative of it. Um, So managers that we're working most are mostly uh, equity long, short. Um, which in itself is, uh, 
is it, it doesn't have more than like a 10 year history Be simply because if you're to do say a market neutral fund, right? Market neutral fund requires single stock shorts. Most of the shorting was done through index index futures. So um, having more complicated paired single stock shorts against your, uh, against your longs market neutral within, you know, plus or minus 10, it's, 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 it's still challenging to find, but there's some really great managers who have built that expertise over the last few years. Um, that space is growing. The quant space is still very, very big, meaning that there are a lot of, there are actually a lot of quant managers in PRC in China who are looking to come offshore. Um, that's not necessarily a function of alpha as, is, as much as it is a function of um, data. Data is very, very um, efficient in, in China. It's very inexpensive to acquire. And uh, in terms of uh, reliability, uh, technical data is, is, has historically been easier to acquire than, say, fundamental data, um, mm. which fundamental data, say, sell-side research, for example, has only really caught up to international standards in the recent five years. So, and even then, not all of the, uh, the names in China are covered. So, you still have a lot of alpha on both sides, alpha in terms of finding managers who, can, who, can, who have been on the ground to understand the technical dynamics of the market and squeeze alpha that way. And then you also have um, an opportunity set from a fundamental perspective because not all of the names are covered. So if you can find managers who have very, very uh, strong proprietary research methodologies, then you'll have, see that there's a tendency for them to outperform as well. And do, do you see that these, this talent maybe used to go to the US and work at a whatever Goldman or Millennium or whatever big hedge fund you want to pay. And now they're staying um, onshore or even. Yeah. In yeah, you're, you're right. Um, in, it's funny you mentioned that when we first started on this, on the search for talent, right, six years ago, and even to extent, um, you know, more recently, we do have a, uh, we do not have a preference, but we do find that those who have had some experience in uh, global markets, uh, not just New York, it could be London, uh, overseas, and in, in, uh, maybe some of them work for uh, sovereigns in, uh, in, in the Nordics, um, who've come back, and they said, you know what, I've kind of hit the, the glass ceiling, um, you know, in, in New York or in, in London, there's a tremendous amount of capital in uh, in liquidity in China. Raising capital for them in um, in Shanghai is going to be far easier than for them to set up their own shop in, in New York. And so naturally, you're going to go you know where it's easier easiest to raise capital. And and a lot of them have set up very successful firms as a result. Do we have any? Uh, you have any stats on like the size of the onshore hedge fund space, like in terms of assets? I know I didn't prep you for that, so I'm just throwing throwing darts at you. But I'm curious what that would be in turn uh, in comparison with the worldwide or the U.S. So the China private fund industry right now is roughly two and a half trillion U.S. dollars. Okay. So that's up. Um, that's up like twenty five percent from from last year, uh, which is enormous. So the hedge fund industry onshore is 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 a very very important driver in in terms of wealth management access and um, and, uh, and 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 high net worth and, and corporate uh, uh, corporate investments. And so my follow up question: Well, one is that include like uh, what we would call mutual fund in the U.S. Like is that uh, funds? No, that are- not mutual funds. 
Okay. And it's not just mutual funds. It's a, it's some of them do have the license to to uh, to run mutual funds, but this is primarily uh, um, private funds. Okay. Um, and primarily doing like most of them are still along the stock market, or they're doing alternative strategies. Yeah, yeah. They, I mean, they have access to all the markets there, right? So CTA, commodities, um, fixed income. Uh, they have access to the stock market. A vast majority of them are uh, long biased. Uh, the growing long short or market neutral funds um, is still still a relatively smaller population, but it's but it's it's growing um, it's growing every day. Um, those who are long biased might open up uh, different products to their investors to allow them to diversify. So I might have a long biased um, portfolio or product uh, on as a core, but then I'll offer a CTA product on the side to help you diversify plus a fixed income. Uh, book for you to uh, round it off. Um, you know, uh, that, that doesn't include the private equity space. Got it. Well, really. So yeah, it, out of our US is whatever, three or four trillion, whatever their hedge fund numbers at, that's mostly private equity, I would say. Um, and then follow up to that of, okay, that's the size of the industry. Now, what's the makeup of those investors? So is it all over the board? Is it a lot of institutional? Um, um, it's, it's less so institutions. Um, it's more so um, uh, private wealth, uh, family offices. Um, there is institutional participation because, um, but it's more of a trickle down effect. If I recall correctly, institutional investors can access um, uh, private managers through fund of funds or through mandates. Um, I don't have the exact breakdown of it. But um, it's probably not as 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 overwhelming as, as as we would be led to believe. But and most institutions are tied to the government somehow. So there's restrictions on like they can only be with a a state-owned entity or something like that. Um, not necessarily state-owned, but they might have exposure limits. For example, yeah. Um, a lot of the institutions say uh, which are also themselves uh, securities companies or, or or wealth management companies. Uh, there are limitations that they have to investing in private uh, private fund management companies or private uh, privately managed fund companies funds. Um, so I think you know there's 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 still a dynamic there of competition onshore that that we'd have to explore. Um, and and is that tell us a little bit? They're kind of infamous in China for chasing returns. So what, what do you see there in terms of like what return profiles and risk profiles they're willing to accept? Yeah, I think um, China's come a long way in terms of uh, their appetite for risk and also their expectation for returns, right? Um, I remember about five years, I think it was, I met with a, um, with the team in, in Guangzhou and we were looking to raise capital or help raise capital for an offshore manager that had a fantastic, uh, you know, very, very respectable performance, about 15%, roughly 15, 16%, uh, max drawdown of like 6% or so, great sharp. And um, we introduced them to uh, a couple of wealth managers in, in PRC and they said, you know, this is you know, very mediocre performance. I was yeah. like, wow, are you kidding? Mediocre <laughs> performance? And they're like, well, we, we can get this type of return eyes closed with any of the 
uh, products that we can buy online even at the time. And there were a lot of distribution of, of funds online, still is to an extent. Um, this was a period where uh, the government was going through the process of restructuring uh, guaranteed products um, or uh, structured products that were um, the underlying might be project financing. And um, it was um, giving out promissory uh, type of structures for 15% guaranteed returns, right? Um, so it's kind of who you knew versus what you knew. No, no, this was very ubiquitous. It was, it was very wide. It was very, very widely, widely accessible in the market, right? Now, fast forward to 2021, um, guaranteed products are no longer allowed. Um, P2P product uh, has been uh, has been uh, has been greatly reduced. So P2P or peer-to-peer lending has been greatly yeah. reduced. That's where a lot of the yield went as well. Uh, yield chasing was, was going as well. Um, equity returns historically have been, you know, a lot of these onshore managers were generating massive returns because of because of their ability to capture inefficient markets and, and speculative market dynamics uh, in China. Numbers you were seeing in, in 2015 were like 70% right before the crash. Yeah. Um, yeah. After the crash, those expectations start to temper down. And now they're coming closer in line with, with what, the, what global uh, hedge fund managers are facing. So it's getting better. It's getting mature. And it's, it's, it's great for competition. Um, even on the fees, uh, you're seeing fee compression uh, starting to occur, right? Uh, we were talking about this earlier, right? In, in, historically, you've seen fees of like 3 and 30 or scaled or tiered fees where if they generated more than 20%, then the fees would go from 20% to 30% to 50% if they generated more than 50% returns. Um, management fees could be as high as like 3 4%, right? Which are yeah. fantastic. I mean, we're all kind of... Uh, salivating at, at, at the butt at the bit yeah. there, right um, but now you're seeing you know traditional equity long bias managers now you know uh, more in line right two percent two and twenty in some cases one and a half and fifteen because competition has become so keen and smaller managers are looking to compete with larger managers especially if they, they can show some talent and what, as you mentioned, that crash is there. Was there is there pushback on right? They instituted no short selling rules and uh, a bunch of other stuff. So I know that killed the uh, that futures contract kind of overnight. The stock index futures contract. Yeah. But in terms of these managers, like if I had a nice long short book, all of a sudden I only have a long book. So any bad experiences with that or stories you can tell? Uh, I don't have any that come to mind. It was quite a while ago. Um, but I can say that it was, um, you know, it was super challenging for the regulators to figure out because you had to stop what could have been uh, a very disastrous event. I think subsequently thereafter, they did, uh, in that, that same year, they did freeze half the market, roughly half the market in, in terms of um, uh, trading. Um even a repatriation of cap- capital was temporarily halted just so that they could sort out, you know, where the, uh, um, where the unwinding was occurring. Um, but afterwards, uh, they did actually start relaxing it. So we are seeing derivatives come back to market, shorting now coming back to the market um, with new rules that allow them to be a little bit more dynamic. Um, and that, that, uh, that opportunity set is growing over time. They're also relaxing more uh, margin financing as well. Um, uh, to allow investors to maximize their dollar. Even for QFI holders who are coming on shore, um, they are uh, providing margin financing or allowing margin financing to occur for, uh, for offshore investors. So 
even after you bring the capital onshore, the new rules allow you to more comfortably maximize that uh, uh, exposure and uh, across more products. So yes, that was, a, uh, that was a tough situation for everyone, for both investors domestically and institutional investors offshore, uh, but they learned a lot from it. Um, and one thing the regulators are really good because you only have one party is that they can move really quickly with regulation to, uh, to yeah. reopen. So, but I so think that's, that's, that's the overarching fear, right? For anyone trying to put money in onshore is, okay, what if they monkey around with the market? No offense, monkey king back there, but what if they uh, mess around with the market? And then what if they halt repatriation? Like you said, like if they don't let the money come out, that's the ultimate uh, no-no. So I feel like that's always going to be a, a headwind um, there until it's just become, right? I guess it's not in Hong Kong. People have no trouble sending money in and out of Hong Kong. So it's like, yeah. it's going to be a headwind until it's not. I don't know how they you know, garner the confidence over decades or something until people are comfortable with it. Yeah, I think it goes both ways too. I think after the, um, in terms of, there's the fear of offshore investors um, being able to repatriate capital. There's also the fear of the government or the fear of onshore investors getting burnt uh, or at least yeah. the, the economy getting burnt. Um, I mean, you and I remember the Asian financial crisis, 1997 uh, was brutal for a lot of the economies here. And uh, those economies that did uh, Im implement capital controls were saved as a result. Yeah. So when you look at it from a very, very short history and, and a memory of that, the, the regulators are, are also thinking at the same time, we want to open up, but how do we do it in such a way that we won't put ourselves at the same risk that we did in 1997 when all this hot money flowed in, flowed out and destroyed both the currency and the economy at the same time. So they're, they're kind of trying to strike that balance. And so, you know, hopefully we can find a happy medium. This all sounds super confusing. So it's like, you need a partner over there, right? Like to navigate all this, you could take years and years to just to figure out how to get through QV, let alone, into private funds over there? How do you do the due diligence on the private managers, on the brokers onshore? Um, so what, you have a pitch, just work with OPIM? So yeah, it's, it's still, it's not as confusing as, as what it sounds like. It's actually pretty straightforward, but at the heart of it, it's about how comfortable our clients allocators feel about um, you know, taking that step. And this is something that we completely understand. Um, so and where I'll, I'll say full disclosure, we've partnered with OPIM to like do this access and gain, uh, gain their expertise to our clients. So in full disclosure there, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, ex exactly. So, you know, we're working with partners uh, globally uh, with the U.S. We're working with, with RCM uh, about bridging that gap. Um, one thing and one language that we speak, uh, you know, in common here in Hong Kong with, with the rest of the world is, is that of uh, compliance and regulation. So that's probably 70% of the, of, of the, uh, the value here that we're, we're looking to provide to our allocators. Um, going through the pipes and the infrastructure is, is, is administrative to an extent. Um, getting capital through and finding the right markets and the products is something that uh, is, is par for the course. So um, it's about providing that trust. If we can provide that trust and, 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 and help our allocators comfortably build that, uh, that portfolio here, it's good for everyone. 
Um, for us, it's about building our network, about building uh, our core competences. Uh, it's about leveraging everything that we learned in the last decade here in, 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 in Hong Kong, uh, working with managers and, and working with the regulators. Um, we found it to be a very, um, a very, very lucrative uh, opportunity set. And I think it's time that we sort of shared that with, with our investors and, 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 uh, and our clients. So this is the All first right. step. Amen. Let's pull the lens back out and just look at Asia overall. I know sure. we've had a discussion maybe two years ago now about, I thought it was Korea was allocating a bunch to alts. So yes. just uh, give me the overall landscape of X china Okay. Um... I'll, I'll be frank. I don't know that I'm haven't I haven't caught up on ex China with like Japan and Australia just yet. Okay. Um, let me. I ex think China, ex Japan, ex Australia. Yeah. yeah. So like, I mean, primarily because Japan, the appetite for alt is so low. It's tiny. Um, it doesn't even show up on on the blip simply because the domestic market is. Is, is is as a as an institution and as a, as a culture is is very risk averse so finding talent in japan for us has been very very challenging um you know uh with australia australia is, is its own market it's dominated by the same you know super funds um and there's some great managers there that we're hoping to look to, to work with over the future um korea is interesting in so much that their appetite for um, cross-border products has historically been very, very strong. Um, all the institutions like the, uh, the Samsungs, the NHs, the KBs, the Marais, um, they're very active in um, both the private equity space and the, the liquid alts uh, globally. Now, what happened a couple of years ago, though, is they, they, they probably got a little bit, um, they probably got a little bit structurally, they, they got themselves into a little bit of trouble when they were allocating to some managers that didn't really meet, or perhaps they did the due diligence and, and something slipped through um, and they ended up with some very, very, you know, uh, uh, scandalous investments, right? Uh, one of them, and I, I won't, I won't name them exactly, but one of them was essentially betting on German rates not to go down. Uh, it was roughly a billion U.S. in exposure. Um, as everyone knows, European yeah, rates are down negative. Yeah, uh, and it was a bulge bracket that actually arranged that deal for them. So um, they got caught on the wrong side of that. Regulators got got involved because there were a lot of um, retiree uh, pension capital uh, that was involved there. And so a lot of these allocators had to pony up. Um, there are some investments in Australia, investments locally where uh, managers were financing uh, short-term uh, obligations with long-term uh, sources of income. And obviously that, you know, Ponzi scheme for another uh, word for it, I, yeah. it just, you know, it just doesn't work out. It works until it doesn't. Um, so they got caught on that. All of this, I think there were three or four scandals that hit Korea all in one year. Wow. So overnight, the regulators tightened up and restricted allocations to, um, to offshore managers. So we're waiting to see how the regulators are going to restructure the, um, um, restructure the, the, the new framework. But once they do, you still can't stop the appetite for yield. Uh, and, and it's still very, very strong domestically in a big part because um, domestic sources of yield are, are, are limited. So they have to go overseas. And then 
what's economically right like during before covid hit everything there was a lot of manufacturing everything was moving to uh vietnam and thailand like you still see that kind of pattern or is china going to remain the low cost uh labor capital um i think the story is probably a little bit more complex yes naturally you want to see diversification of plants going out to asean uh, with Thailand, Vietnam, uh, Malaysia. Uh, we were in Indonesia last year, just checking out the landscape. Same population as the U.S., and it's it's only 50% banked, right? That means wow. only 50% of the population have a, a bank account, right? So that's a massive, massive opportunity with a uh, with a population the size of the U.S. And it has um, like and 95% you, of newfound species. Anytime there's an article of like, we found a new species, it's in a jungle in Indonesia. Exactly. It's a jungle. Exactly. It's, yeah. um, but it's not a jungle anymore, right? Like, right. I mean, it's not a jungle. Like Indonesia is not a jungle anymore. Like the place is uh, completely kitted out. They have like the Ubers and they have there, it's called Grab. Um, it, it's, it's very, very high tech. Every, there's more mobiles there than there is bank accounts. So the dynamics of that economy are, are changing sort of leapfrogging ahead of the traditional industries and into new economy a lot, a lot more quicker. So when we see, um, when we see the movement of manufacturing and investments out of China into the ASEAN space, it's partly as a result of diversification in manufacturing, but it's also a diversification of Chinese industries moving into these areas as well, actively to uh, and opportunistically to capitalize on, on a growing market there. Right. So is that a lot of Chinese money is setting up investing Absolutely. in those facilities and that's what's um, building that huge middle class and these two and a half trillion of hedge fund investments in China. Exactly. That's exactly it. Um, so it's really exciting. Um, you know, we talked about manufacturing. Um, you know, one of the linchpins of in a lot of the short books were betting that China could not convert its GDP composition from uh, like manufacturing and, and, and agriculture into services, right? Yeah. This is like a big sort of the thesis. Um, and strangely enough, just in the last five years, in the last decade, they managed to make that move uh, into the service sector. Um, 97, I think the number was the number was roughly it, services in 1997 were roughly 20% of GDP. Now services represent more than 50%, really? which is insane. And then you think about the GDP itself, the pie growing, which is now roughly equal to 70% of the United States, right? U US GDP is roughly $20 trillion. Uh, China is right now at 14 to $15 trillion, which is insane. Yeah. Um, I thought that you would pat I thought China had passed this, but next year. Yeah. Yeah. Or the year after. Well they're um, they're targeting ahead of schedule twenty twenty eight now is 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 what they're targeting. And so in all like, those so it seems to me the the investment appetite in those other what'd you call it? ASEAN? ASEAN. ASEAN, that's what, Asia Oceanic? Association of Southeast Asian Nations. Aha, uh -huh. good. Something new today, ASEAN. Um, 
So Asian, that's more about like, hey, these kind of big macro investments instead of like, we're finding a long short manager who's just Thai, Thailand focused or something. Does that exist or very limited? Uh, yeah, yeah. Actually, we have been getting more and more in the last three years, we've been getting uh, more requests for managers who, who know how to trade those markets. Now, the bottleneck for ASEAN um, outside of Singapore is just the markets or the, the companies that have listed into those exchanges. The exchanges themselves are very, very shallow. Yeah. So um, as a strategy, as an allocation strategy for institutions, it can only represent a very, very small percentage of the book. But that, that, that's going to grow over time simply because of the amount of capital that's moving into uh, moving into those areas from an economic perspective. So as those come more and more of those companies reach the size of, you know, where they can hit the capital markets and that those markets get deeper, like Vietnam and, and, and Thailand, for example, uh, it's going to get very, very exciting. I think Vietnam is one of the outperforming markets in, in uh, of the year. I need to go back and check that, but I think, yeah. I think it was Vietnam, yeah, Vietnam and Philippines. Well, at least that was from our U.S.-China trade war, right? Of like Apple and a few others are like, oh my God, we got to diversify and get that, <laughs> get into Vietnam. So we were on a call a while back and I was downstairs during our call watching Clone Wars with my daughter. So I just got to get your quick uh, thought on Clone Wars and Star Wars overall as you drink from your mug. Yeah. Well, which part? This this could be another hour and a half, Jeff. Yeah, we'll just go quickly. So you're one of the few people over uh, 30 that I know that have watched every Clone Wars episode. Yeah, I have. Yeah, I've watched everyone, including the extended ones that Filoni, uh, Dave Filoni, who is uh, the master in, in recovering and saving Star Wars from the uh, debacle that it was two years ago. Um, yeah, I think bringing Ahsoka to life was kind of the backbone of that. Um, I'm probably one of the few who actually own a replica of her lightsabers. Um, it was built by um, lightsabers, by the, right? Is one longer than the other? That's right. One is a Shoto and one is a main. Yeah. 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 I'm still looking for a stand for it, but it's, it's fully operational. It's all machine cut cost me a pretty penny to commission it, but, um, but I'm going to have it in my office, you know, in yeah, a couple and weeks. you didn't bring it to show me. I'm upset. I know. <laughs> uh, so we'll work into our favorites here. Do you have a favorite Clone Wars season or episode? Um, that's a really, I think the, the extended ones, they just got so good. Yeah. The extended ones where it was Ahsoka versus, um, oh, what's his name? The, uh, the Sith, uh, Darth Maul. Yeah. They actually did. They actually did motion capture of Ray Parks um, playing uh, Darth Maul against Ahsoka, who was another actress. Wow, that was phenomenal! And they did that for TV. They did that not just for TV, but for an animated animated series. Yeah, series. They have too much money. Um, <laughs> and then you you enjoyed Mandalorian. Yeah, I thought it was a, I was I thought it was a great re I thought it was a great sort of rebasing of what was true Star Wars, right? And I, yeah, it was very Western, right? Like old school yeah. Western movies, but um, yeah, it was like a gritty feel. It was great. It's yeah. I, I wonder if they're going to be able to like what are they going to do next? Like Baby Yoda was a tough act to follow. It was. They can do it. 
Yeah, well, well, Disney owns the world now, right? They, they, they're, they're on a roll. They're, they're knocking out of the park with Star Wars. They brought it back from the dead. They're knocking it out of the park with Marvel. Um, yeah, I've yeah. got some Disney stock. When they announced Disney Plus, um, Scott Galloway, who I listen to his pod all the time, he was like, this is going to be, it's like everyone with kids under the age of 15 is going to have Disney Plus. <laughs> like, are you kidding me? It's a no-brainer. It's a um, no-brainer, yeah. And then yeah. once the parks start kicking back up, and then his thing is, if you have a Disney Plus membership, right? Like it'll be, you can get the extra suite on the cruise ship or extra go into the park an hour earlier, right? It'll be like Amazon Prime when you go into Whole Foods. Like basically, your Disney Plus membership will allow you to do all these real life things in addition to the streaming. I didn't be- even think about that. Yeah, the cross sell and the synergies for that to sort of lock you into the the ecosystem. That's brilliant. Yeah, for sure. He, any, he any, idea when the, any idea when the parks are going to reopen? Uh, I do not, but that's been on my radar for a while because they have in Florida, it's going to be the uh, replica of like a Star Destroyer hotel that you can go to and they've got like characters and a bridge and you can basically your room is like you're in the, like the, the window is actually like a viewport where you see stars and whatnot. Um, have you been uh, to the Galaxy Galaxy's Edge? I, I was there last year before COVID, i think i think after i saw you and yeah after i saw you in miami and we did context and then i drove up saw my mom in vero beach and then we did galaxy's edge and i flew out of orlando yeah did you make yourself a, a lightsaber at the uh the I lightsaber did. i had the uh i had an obi-wan cloak that i got it was my, it was my splurge. <laughs> All right, let's. Let, we probably have two listeners left here, but um, let's go through a few of your favorites. So, favorite Hong Kong restaurant? That's uh, I just read about a Michelin star one that reopened or something. I can't remember the name of it. Uh, wow, that's a hard one. It would probably have to be. Or I'll, I'll let you out if you want a favorite Hong Kong street food. Hong Kong street food, uh, it would have to be turnip, uh, fried. Uh, it's kind of like a fried turnip cake. Uh, it's, it's like a, it's like a, not a potato. It's like a, yeah, it's like a fried turnip cake. I forgot what they call it in Japanese, but, um, it's, it's, a uh, it's got like bits of ham in it. Uh, the staple is this starch base and then you fry it. I, I try to deep fry it, but you fry it and it, it comes out like a, a, a sort of like a square piece of French fries, but it's got like bacon and, and um, you it know, some chives in it. Oh, it's fantastic. <laughs> Turnips and ham. Yeah, lobaco, they're called. It's called lobaco, but. Yeah. So um, favorite tennis player. You already named three of them. If I had to make you pick. Oh, it's got to be fed. It's got to be fed. All right, Federer. Um, favorite investing book. Oh, so um, one of the guys, one of the teams we partner with, um, Funseeder, and this is a shameless plug for Funseeder.com. Guys, check it out if you're looking to uh, figure out how you're trading. <laughs> Funseeder.com was started by Jack Schwager. Yeah, and Jack Schwager. Was, he was on the podcast like ten episodes ago. Yeah. Oh, is that right? Yeah. 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 
Yeah, no, so he's uh, my favorite writer on, on investing and he's, he's a great friend and, uh, you know, a big supporter of what they're doing over at Fundseeders. So, uh, so check him out. I think he just came out with a, a new book called Undiscovered Wizards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's actually under the computer. I have my, uh, the new market wizards. <laughs> oh, you're right. It's called, was, yeah, Unknown Market Wizards. Yeah, Unknown Market Wizards. Um, and then uh, finally, favorite Star Wars character which I'm assuming is Ahsoka, but maybe not. Just that's your favorite lightsaber setup. Yeah, yeah. I, I got to say uh, right now it's Ahsoka. I mean, it, it, was, uh, it was previously Anakin, but now it's, it's I got to say, Ahsoka's taking the cake because, you know, there's a great story ahead. Yeah. yeah. Right. So that's Rosario Dawson. That's going to be a live series too, right? What do you think? What do you think of Rosario Dawson? She was great. Like, yeah, and the the get up and everything because you're like, how are you going to make this animated look with like horns basically become a, a real life thing? But they did it. They yeah, have any issues with them shortening the tendrils? Uh, no, I didn't even notice that. So yeah. yeah, me neither. I thought it was fantastic. She did a great job. Yeah, she's good. All right, Alvin, it's been fun. Um, <laughs> talk to you soon. We'll put our links on how to get Aldi in the show notes and. Best of luck to you. Yeah, thanks a lot, Jeff. You too. Looking forward right, to Alvin, it. Have a great day. You've been listening to The Derivative. Links from this episode will be in the episode description of this channel. Follow us on Twitter at RCMAlt. And visit our website to read our blog or subscribe to our newsletter at rcmalts.com. If you liked our show, introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe. And be sure to leave comments. We'd love to hear from you.